God is here. What a beautiful meditation as we head into the study of his word, as we worship him and sitting under his authority and celebrating his love and his work. We're going to be continuing our series, uh, Ruin to Restoration, as we look at the second part of Isaiah, chapter 40 to 66. Uh, Today, we are going to look specifically at redemption in restoration. The prophet Isaiah, uh, he lived around the turn of the 701 to 700s, the 659s, around the turn of the 7th and the 8th centuries, or the 6th and the 7th centuries. I don't know. I get so confused with how all that works. But he was speaking to a people who had been taken into exile in 586. They had been ripped from their homeland, from Jerusalem. Their city had been burned. The temple of the Lord had been destroyed. It had been ruined and raised. And they had been taken captive in chains and hooks all the way into uh, Babylon. And Isaiah is speaking to a people who are far off in exile, experiencing the ruin of a fallen world and the consequences of their sin. That shared world for us, We are a people who also live in a fallen world. And we face the same challenges as we live in exile. The already accomplishment of the kingdom of God that is not yet fully fulfilled. We have the same tension of who we will trust, of what we will love, and what we will obey. Now we've seen so far in our journey that God gives promise for restoration. He comforts his people and he strengthens us by his word and his work. And we can fully trust in that, obeying him and loving him in response to his covenant love for us. His presence with us in our already not yet fallen world struggle where we experience ruin is a guarantee of the full removal of those things and his eternal presence with us. God is with his people. He has accomplished salvation and done a new work. Historically, we saw last week that that work is the return of God's people from exile to their homeland. No country in history had ever been taken into exile and then returned to their land. God did that. But his work of salvation is something that gives us a new song. And we talked about how that new song helps connect us to the larger story of Scripture. The first line of the song of salvation, the first stanza, if you will, was found in Genesis chapter 3.15. After Adam and Eve rebelled against God, though ruined the world through the disorder that sin brings, God made a promise that he would make it right. And the song of salvation began to echo down the corridors of time. And we saw how the song of salvation is connected with Moses and his people. His song in Exodus 15, after the uh, waters came back over on the Red Sea on the enemy of Egypt, the song was carried through women like Hannah and like Deborah and other judges all throughout history. Kings like David sang songs of salvation. And ultimately, the story of Scripture and God's victory over all that has been ruined, all sin and death, is finds its fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth where people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation are singing the song of salvation. It is something, a chorus, that really connects all of God's story. 
We're looking at this series because we have several specific needs as God's people. Some of you say, well, Mitchell, we're really going to do a a, a several-month series all the way through Easter from the Old Testament? I mean, don't you know it's old? Let's talk about something new. We need to hear it. Here's why we need to hear it. We need to deepen our hunger for restoration. Friends, life is not the way it is supposed to be. We long for restoration. We love it, and we need to deepen that hunger in our, in our struggles against death, our struggles against difficulties and dysfunction and sin. We need to long for the redemptive and restorative work of Jesus Christ. We do this as a city uh, uh, geographically. We celebrate the restoration of the San Antonio River. We actually won an international award for that. We also love the restoration of the Pearl District, a place where no one in this room 15 years ago would park even near and get out of your car. And now we can't wait to go there and have lunch. In fact, you're probably saying, Mitchell, it's about time, isn't it? You're going to have to wait a little longer, but we, we, we have a whole economy. We've got TV shows that are built off the restorations of houses and of cars, but we need to deepen our longing for the restoration that comes through the salvation and the work of Jesus Christ the reordering of God's good world put back through the work of Christ in the way that he has intended it. But not only that, we need to deepen our understanding of God's faithfulness. We have a problem in the church. We really believe that God loves us and accepts us because we're religious or we do good works. That is not a biblical formula. I'm not good at math, but I'm pretty sure that your work plus your work does not equal God's love. God's love comes to us because he's covenantly faithful. He is in relationship with us because of what he has done for us, not what we've done for him. Our love for the Lord never begins with our own work. We also need to deepen our knowledge of him and his work. You see, when we study this section of Isaiah, we get to know Jesus Christ and his mission and his message more intimately and more richly. When Jesus describes his ministry, he uses these passages. When the Bible reflects on who Jesus is, he's called the servant of the Lord. The, the, the title and the image, the representation that we find in these passages. We know who Christ is and his mission for uh, uh, the world and for the church through studying this. And finally, we need to be a people who deepen our endurance. You know, we give up too easily. We quit too soon. When life gets really difficult, we just stop believing the promises of God. We need to see a picture of God's faithfulness that is so majestic that we can join the chorus of the early apostles. It was Peter in 1 Peter 4, James in James chapter 1, who said that we count all of our suffering and our struggle joyous. It was the Apostle Paul who says that we rejoice in our suffering. In fact, God has a purpose in it. In chapter 5, he shows us that it is for our proven character. He's using it. We can, enjoy, we can join the, the early church as they struggled in persecution and found a way to sing in the midst of it. I love Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were in prison. They were singing hymns at midnight, <laughs> praising God in their suffering. And we can join the Apostle John who while exiled in persecution on the island of Patmos, had such a majestic vision of the Lord and his rule that he was able to have peace. You see, we need to deepen our endurance. 
And the way that we do that in studying the Old Testament is really understanding what God is calling us to, our heart position. We must be a people who see the faithfulness of God and turn from, categorically, holistically reject and push away the idols of our culture, the false gods, whether it's our own good works or the, or the false gods of our culture, and return to worshiping the living God. This is why we have said throughout this series, that what we revere, that is what we worship, will either further our ruin or will lead us to restoration. We must return to the living God and worship him with all of our hearts, all our minds, and all of our, uh, all of our, uh, all of our mi- hearts, minds, and souls. You see, yeah. we're in this together, right? Nothing but grace. Let's look at the word today uh, from Isaiah chapter 44. Please join me. It's in your uh, pew Bibles. Open them up. We're going to sit in this text uh, today. We're going to start at verse 21, but cover the whole chapter. Hear God's word. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in all of Israel." Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, and who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of a servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and to the temple your foundations shall be laid. In response to God's word, please join me in this call in response. All flesh is grass, and all of its glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word, and we are your people. We ask that you would be pleased to eliminate our distractions, those things competing for the space of our minds and our hearts. We ask that you would reveal yourself freshly and fully, that we might not just be inspired, but truly transformed. Give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. We're going to begin right there at verse 21 with our first point. We see that idols cannot save. Idols cannot save us in our ruin. We must turn from them. Remember these things, says the Lord. That's the first part. Remember these things. What are we to remember? Well, he says part of it right there in the rest of the verse. Remember that I'm the one who formed you. You are my servant, O Israel, not to be forgotten by me. Your God remembers you. No matter how difficult your circumstances, he has not forgotten you. And your relationship is so intimate that he describes it as I have formed you. Later, down in chapter, in verse 24, he says, I formed you in the womb. That word formed is repeated. It takes us back in Isaiah, but specifically the first verse of this chapter, where God says freshly, I formed you in the womb. Your mind, I created you. 
But another place that that word formed takes us is the way that he talks about idols. Idols that have been formed by the hands of men. Idols that have taken wood and been formed. Taking metal and images that have been formed. The word intentionally draws us on the one hand to a more intimate relationship and knowledge of God, but on the other hand, it takes us to those places in our world and in our life where we have sought to find things that only God can give us. Those are idols. I want to encourage you when you go home today, spend five minutes reading chapter 44. It is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I have hundreds of them, but it's one of my favorites. And in it, you'll see God at his best in his sacred sarcasm. It is hilarious how God mocks people who make idols, who worship idols, uh, and it is worth your time. But what he does is he challenges a people who are living in a fallen world, who are experiencing the ruin of life, and who are tempted to look to things of this world with their hearts and their mind and their lives that only, to find things that only God can give. And I'm going to ask you to, uh, to go back and look with me at just two verses here. Isaiah 44, 8 and 9. Uh, it's on here on the screen. Would you please read it loud and proud with me? This is the 11 o'clock service. Read it. Let's go. Fear not, nor be afraid. I have not told you from old and declared, and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. You might read this and say, well, you know, I'm not really that kind of person. You know, people fashion idols. I'm not one who goes and bows down to those things. I don't have little idols in my house and little idols in my car. I think this sermon is really for somebody else. I'm just going to put my mind on Paul's and think about going to eat at the Pearl after this. Let me bring it home to you a little bit. If you want a great modern resource, a contemporary resource on understanding idolatry, I encourage you to look at the book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. In his introduction, the whole book is phenomenal. In his introduction, he provides four categories of questions that really bring home this concept of idolatry to a contemporary people living in the West, in America. He, he says, how you answer these questions will help you see what you worship. First, what do you look at in order to try and control that which you fear most? Your greatest fear. What do you look to to try to control that and keep it away? Second, what if you lost it would make your life not worth living? It would just take away your meaning and your purpose. Usually those are good things that become ultimate things. Number three, category three, what do you sacrifice for in your life? Worshiping something denotes that we sacrifice for it in worship. What are those things that you sacrifice God things to get the good things of your idol? And what are those things that you get angry at if they're threatened? Number four, where do you look to for your sense of security? And what or who do you get your confidence from? 
You see, the ways we answer those questions, if if it's not being answered with the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, then those things that do fill in the blanks, those are our idols, our idols, our idols. And they may not be things that are carved out of wood or out of metal into images, but they are things that capture our hearts. And the categories that are offered in these verses that we just read help us understand. There are things that we look to for delight, but they don't deliver and they bring destruction. They are things that we look to to profit our lives that aren't the Lord, but they really pervert our lives and lead to disorder. There are things that we want to serve us, but instead of serving us, we become slaves to them. There are things that are thought in our minds to give us restoration, but really they further the ruin. There's a confirmation in, this, in these two verses that there really is only one true God. And anything that we turn to to find the things of God that only He can give us, these are idols. And we must turn from them and worship or revere the living God to find what only God can give us. What do you love? What do you trust? What do you obey? We so easily forget, back to our passage in Isaiah 44, 21, remember these things. Why do we so easily forget? Why does God need to remind us? It's all about relationship. We get so distracted with our relationship with work, our relationship with our finances, our relationship with our entertainment and escape, our relationship with our friends, our relationship with our schedules, our relationship in leadership, our relationship blank, 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 blank. We get so distracted that we don't really take the Lord up on his intimate invitation and respond to him saying, I love you. I want to speak to you. I want my word and my work to restore you. I have redeemed you. You are mine. That's exactly what we see him say, or we hear him say in the second and final point. I have redeemed you. The word redemption here, uh, you see it repeated in the passage at the end of verse 22. He says, I have redeemed you. At the end of verse 23, he says, I, the Lord, have redeemed Jacob. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your redeemer. God is making a clear port through repetition. He has redeemed you. What does that mean? Redemption is literally a term that involves buying back a slave. Buying someone from slavery so that they could be free as they're intended to be. The idea is the idols that you go to and that I go to to try to have them serve us, we actually become slaves to them. And we obey them. And we trust them. And we, look, we, we act in love towards them. He frees us from that slavery through purchasing us so that we can be free to live as he's called us to be. Now we have to answer a question. I mean, God is a holy God, right? And he's just, and so our sin must be paid for. How can a holy God be reconciled with an unholy, polluted people? How can a just God call back into relationship a people that have lived unjustly and disobedient to him? Well, he answers that question in verse 22. He says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. 
You know, when I was driving in this morning uh, downtown and the sun was coming up, there was a difference in temperature between the earth. It was a different temperature than the air. And everywhere where there was grass on a field uh, or in the woods, there was actually mist. There was a fog. It was really cool. But I guarantee that when I go out and go back out of this place and drive past those same places, that mist and that fog will not be here. And just the other day, early in the week, I was driving downtown, and the Tower of Americas was covered up by the fog, the low fog. I love the hill country low fog in the mornings. But by lunchtime, the sun was out, and that fog had been removed. It could be seen no more. When, Jesus, or when the Lord talks about removing our sins, it vanishes like a cloud and like a mist. You can't even see it anymore. That is how a holy God does this, and this is runs all the way through Isaiah. You can go to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, and he says, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be turned white as snow. In chapter 4, verse 4, he says, the filth of your shame, the filth of your reproach, it will be cleansed, washed away. In, in chapter 38, 17, he says that he takes your sins, he takes our sins, and he hides them behind his back where he sees them no more. And last week in chapter 43, verse 18, he says, your sin is blotted out. It is removed, he says, for my name's sake. You see, the way that God can, can have a relationship, a holy God with an unholy people, a just God with, a, with a, a group of people that deserve justice, it doesn't begin with you being good. It doesn't begin with your own work. That's why Isaiah says later, your best work is like a disgusting, filthy rag that can only be thrown away. And Paul quotes him on that in the New Testament. It's not just Old Testament. Right? God's covenant faithfulness always begins with his work for us. That is why as we come to see, and we will see the more full picture of who the servant is, he says and revealed in chapter 53 of Isaiah, all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us have sinned. All of us. But there is one who comes, the servant, who bore our iniquities. He bore our sins, and by his stripes we are healed. In chapter 10, of, verse 10 of 53, he says, it was the Lord's will to crush him so that we could be built up, restored, and renewed. Our Redeemer has bought us. And he says, return to me. Now there's many great illustrations of redemption, but the most powerful one that Scripture offers comes through the prophet Hosea. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom during the 8th century, and he was called to share the message of God's covenant love with his lips and with his life. And he had a really hard call. You know what his call was? God told him to go marry a woman of ill repute, that is a prostitute. Now, if I'm Hosea and I have the mantle of prophet, and in that moment when God says, okay, I, I want you to go and marry a woman of ill repute, a prostitute, I would say, what? Like, are you serious? How about I take the, you know, can I just go talk? Like, isn't that what a prophet does? He just speaks with his mouth. You know, I would resign. I'd hang up my mantle. But God says, no. Read it. Hosea chapter 1 to chapter 3. Go marry a woman at Little Reproof. Why? Because she represents my people who have turned their back on my relationship. And Hosea married Gomer. It's amazing. And in their marriage, she turned her back on him. She slept with at least three other men and had three children by another parent, another father. 
And she went off, her life got so destitute that she was a sex slave. And at that moment, you would expect God to say, see, that's what happens when you trust the promises of this culture that it will never deliver. That's what happens when you turn and trust the love, the empty promises of humanity. That's what happens when you obey your desires. And now let's take Hosea and you speak to my people who are good people. That's what you kind of expect, right? That's not the way God rolls. God tells Hosea, now you see her as a sex slave, go buy her back. And Hosea redeems her. He buys her out of slavery. He takes her again as his wife. And he says, you are mine. That is the covenant love of a living God. His faithfulness always begins with his work and his commitment, never with ours. And we are compelled in our ruin to turn to this love and to hear him say, I have bought you. You are mine. I created you in the womb. You belong to me. But you rebelled and you went from me and I bought you with the blood of my son. You are mine doubly. And I love you. What happens in our ruin when we experience the redemption of the Lord? Let me tell you, glory. Can you say glory? glory. I mean, I need to hear you say glory. Say glory. glory. That's what I'm talking about. The following verses, put them all on the screen, walk us through glory. Look with me at the end of verse 23. He says, For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and I will be glorified in Israel. Why does God get all the glory? Look at the beginning of verse 23. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. The work is accomplished. He has done everything for you to be saved, for you to be redeemed. He has done it all. You need only to turn to him and his love. And that takes us to the L. Love is the centerpiece. It is central to the relationship. God not only likes his people, he loves his people. And we don't believe that because we believe the, the power and the pain of our circumstances more than we believe the power and the personal word of the Lord that is found in the work of Jesus Christ and his revelation in his word. The, the word formed, the repeated word formed, you're mine. I formed you. I've knit you together exactly how you're supposed to be. And when we trust him, it overturns the wisdom of the world. Look, look with me down uh, in verse 25. He frustrates the sign of liars. He makes fools of diviners. He turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. We live in a world that says if you really want to be profitable in business, then you've got to be unethical. We live in a world that says if you really want to have a, a strong relationship, then you need to follow your impulses and your designs and obey your feelings and, and act like you're married before you actually exchange vows before a covenant God and his people. We live in a world that says if you want to really be successful, then you've got to do everything to make sure you are on top. The wisdom of this world is foolishness. He overturns it, and Paul will use this language when he talks about salvation that comes through Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to chapter 3. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wiser wiseness of the wisdom of man. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Hard to understand. God overturns. 
And when we return to this relationship, understand how he has redeemed us, then our ruins are restored. Mitchell, that sounds good, but can you prove it? Look at verse 26. Though he confirms the word of his servant, God will restore. He fulfills the counsel of his messengers. He says of Jerusalem, the city that has been abandoned, the city that has been empty, he says, you will again be inhabited. I will raise up the ruins. God wants to bring restoration to your life. God wants to bring restoration to your relationships. God wants to bring restoration to your family. God wants to bring restoration to your finances. God wants to bring restoration to uh, your, your life and get you off of the substances that you're addicted to. God wants to bring restoration to you and to this world. And we find it when we understand his redeeming work and turn to him. And you say, well, Mitchell, that's a big step of faith. I don't know if I can take that step of faith. I mean, everybody's doing something different. I've always done this a certain way. I don't know if I can really trust the unconditional, faithful love of God. And that's where it takes us to the why. You need not fear. Don't fear the power of the economy. Don't fear the political powers of this world. Don't fear the other things that feed the idols of your heart and your culture. Look at verse 40, or 28 or 27. He says, God's the one who says to the deep, be dry. Well, when did God say that? God said that to the uh, Red Sea when the Egyptian army was chasing after his people. Be dry. And God gave salvation over, over the most strong military in the world at the time. The Egyptian army and Pharaoh were swallowed up by the Red Sea. Verse 28, God says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd. Who, was, who is Cyrus? Cyrus was the head of the Persian Empire, the most powerful empire of the day. He is a servant of the Lord. The one who would overtake Babylon is the one that would send God's people back. God is saying, I've been faithful in the past. I've overcome all the powers of the world in the past. I'll be faithful in the future. I will overcome all the powers in the future. You can trust me in the present. Do you believe that? You need not fear. The Lord is with you. And when you trust his love, his covenant faithfulness, then you will realize he will become your delight and your destruction will be reordered. You will find that real profit comes, not in seeking the idols of this world, but, but understanding that God saw it as a profit to give himself, to empty himself, to become poor for us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He became poor because his profit was to make us rich in his love and his grace. You can find when you trust God's covenant love that the slavery and the bondage that you are in can be freed and gone because there is one who entered into servitude and slavery, bondage to the point of death, death on a cross, so that you could be freed. You say, I long for restoration. Then you look to the one who says, because I long for an intimate relationship with you, my people, I entered into ruin, ruin to the point of death, so that you could have hope and be restored. Restoration always comes after redemption, and redemption never begins with our work for God, but it always begins with God's unconditional, faithful love for his people, who says no matter where you are or what you've done, return to me. I formed you, and I want to reform you by my grace and my love. Will you listen? Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glory that comes from really trusting your love. You have redeemed us. You've done all that it takes in the person and work of Jesus Christ who lived the life we could never live and died the death we deserve to die, Lord. I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, this would be our song, that we would sing it with all of our lives all day long, every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen.